and we'll be starting at Leviticus 8, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron and his sons, their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams and the basket containing bread made without yeast, and gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses said to the assembly, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron, tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. He also fastened the ephod with a decorative waistband, which he tied around him. He placed the breastpiece on him and put the urim and the thummim in the breastpiece. Then he placed the turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred emblem, on the front of it, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then he brought Aaron's sons forward, put tunics on them, tied sashes around them and fastened caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. He then presented the bull for the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the bull and took some of the blood, and with his finger he put it on all the horns of the altar to purify the altar. He poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar, so he consecrated it to make atonement for it. And now to chapter 9, verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, Take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people, and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. Now down to verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, 
This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkempt, and do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the Israelites, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting, or you will die, because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. Uh, Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we've heard your word this morning, uh, we are struck by, uh, yeah, some of things that might stand out to us this morning, and particularly how it ends there. There's a really uh, quite a confronting story in a lot of ways. Father, I pray that your spirit would work amongst us as we consider the meaning of your word here. I pray, Father, that indeed your Holy Spirit would work in us and... uh, Make the gospel dig deep into our hearts as we come away amazed again of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our world today, uh, there is a temple in our culture where cult worship is regularly performed that we should be aware of. These temples are large, able to house many who observe the rituals conducted in this temple. In this temple, there's a holy area where only a select number of priests can go to perform their cultish rituals. These priests wear special clothing and who themselves need to go through extensive preparations in order to perform their rituals. This temple has dedicated guards who ensure that unauthorized people do not enter the holy place. And there are dedicated individuals in this temple whose sole purpose is to ensure that the rituals are conducted in accordance with the strict rules of this sacred order. As the rituals are performed, observers often shout out in loud praise and worship to their gods, yelling, Go saints! Go Ds! <clears throat> Have I given away the identity of this temple? Of course, I'm speaking of AFL footy. Now, in using this illustration this morning, I'm not necessarily saying AFL is idolatry, although it definitely can be. Uh, upon occasion, I enjoy going to the footy myself. Uh, But if it is your sole source of fulfilment and joy in life, then there's a problem. 
But the reason I use this illustration this morning is for two key reasons in helping us with our passage today. First, as we head into Leviticus 8 to 10, it can seem excessive to us with all the priestly clothing and preparations and sacrifices. And yet, in some ways, it's not so foreign to us because we have extensive rituals that exist in our own culture for things that we highly value. Perhaps you you might think of a university graduation ceremony as another example that points to and reveals another idol in our culture. That is of pursuing academic success and achievement in that way for personal fulfilment rather than finding our joy and fulfilment in God. Uh, Secondly, in Leviticus 8 to 10, uh, these chapters could really seem really foreign to us. But I'm sure if you sat down with an ancient Israelite and went to a game of footy with them, they would be equally puzzled and perplexed as you, read, as you are reading about the, the Leviticus uh, priesthood of Aaron and his sons. And so for us today as 21st century readers, it's important for us to be willing to work through these issues and come to a place of understanding. To see the big picture screaming out from us from God's word here. To see how it points to something beyond itself, to something greater. To none other than the priesthood of Jesus, the ultimate and better high priest. Achieving who who Jesus achieved for God's people what Aaron and his sons could not achieve. Whereby drawing us near to God and finding our everything and our deepest joy in him. And so from our text this morning, I want to ask, what is the first thing that we learn about Jesus from the priesthood of Aaron? Well, it's this. The first thing is this, that the priesthood of Jesus is perfect. As a whole, chapters 8 to 10 really describe the installation of Aaron's priesthood. As as Dan has explored in recent weeks, chapters 1 to 7 There it showed the different types of sacrifices commanded of Israel and what each of those sacrifices meant. Now as we come to chapters 8 and 10, we see who were to perform these sacrifices. So it wasn't just anybody who could rock up at the temple or the tabernacle and offer a sacrifice. Instead, God ordained Aaron and his sons as a priest of Um, as a family of priests who are dedicated to that task and who they themselves need to go undergo extensive preparations for their role. Focusing first then on chapter 8, all the rituals there were symbolic of one key thing, one key requirement of Aaron and his sons. That is, the need for them to be considered perfect. Pure, holy, in order to be effective priests on behalf of the people. All the washing, the special clothing, the extra special clothing for Aaron, the the anointing oil, the sacrifices just for Aaron and the sons, all point to this one reality. That all this outward cleansing and becoming ritually pure was symbolic of their need for being cleansed on the inside, to be clean on the heart, free from sin. Only then would they be able to 
perform their duties. But for all the symbolism and even the temporal success of Aaron and his sons, rather than truly making them clean, Scripture elsewhere makes it explicitly clear that all these rituals were designed ultimately to point to the only one who was truly righteous, holy, pure, and perfect through and through, namely Jesus. In Hebrews 4.15, the writer there says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Furthermore, in Hebrews chapter 7 from verse 26, it says there, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, namely Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, Aaron and his sons, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Only Jesus, the perfect God man who never sinned, was eligible to be that perfect and pure and better high priest. Unlike Adam, who in the beginning gave in to the temptations of the devil, or like Aaron and his sons, who ultimately were sinners like you and I, Jesus, in contrast to them, in contrast to us, was born perfect, without original sin, who resisted the temptations of the devil, never once giving in to sin during his earthly life. For us today, this is why believing in Jesus is so precious. Because if you believe in Jesus, his righteousness becomes yours. Now, if you believe in Jesus, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, but he sees his perfect son. The biblical language used to describe this is being justified in God's sight. But actually more than that, not only are Christians seen and declared by God to be perfect, but also through the work of the Holy Spirit, God gives us a new nature, a new holy nature. Not that we are fully perfect yet in all ways in this life, but that through this God-given nature, God continues to work in us and shaping us more and more into the image of Christ as we live for him day by day fighting sin that remains in our life. Fellow believers, this is good news for us because it means that if you are a believer, we don't need to prove ourselves good enough for God. Maybe you're a believer today here who is feeling the weight of your sin. Many Christians are plagued with not feeling good enough, constantly feeling like God rejects you. And while actually in yourself it's true that you aren't good enough, That's the point of being a sinner. But when you feel like that, if you're a believer, that is precisely the time for you to look to Jesus anew 
to be reminded of the splendor of the gospel. Knowing that it is Jesus in his righteousness that is made yours. That in Christ you are already accepted by God. But maybe you're a listener here today who wouldn't yet, or at the moment, wouldn't consider yourself a believer. Maybe you're not all that convinced of this we're all a sinner thing. Or maybe you do consider yourself a believer, but deep down you kind of struggle to really accept yourself to be a sinner. Or maybe in another instance again, you do acknowledge that you're a sinner who needs Jesus, but you kind of think, well, Jesus is only part of the equation. That your good deeds still count for something still. A bit like meeting halfway with God. A bit like Catholic teaching or similar teaching teachers. According to this thinking, good deeds count for something. With faith in Christ, just kind of getting yourself across the line. A bit like going to the fuel bowser and getting a final top-up on your uh, way to your final holiday destination. In that way, you might believe that your good works in some way help you achieve salvation. But in each of these situations just described, God says something very clear in the gospel. He says nothing less than the perfection of my son and his righteousness will ever do. The Christian faith in that way is all or nothing. Either we solely and completely rely on Jesus and his perfection, his perfect sacrifice on the cross. Or the alternative is to, in some ways, still be relying on ourselves, to be self-saviors. Forever trying to prove yourself good enough for God, but forever falling short. Scripture teaches Something really clear, that justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I wonder if you today do believe yourself truly a sinner, in need of, holy need, fully needing Jesus to save you. That's not the only thing we learn from our passage, though, about the perfect priesthood of Jesus. As we consider Aaron's priesthood, the second thing we learn this uh, is this, that the priesthood of Jesus is relational. And it's relational because of how Jesus draws us near to God. Uh, once it, uh, Aaron and his sons in chapter 8 went through all that extensive preparation. Now as we move on to chapter 9... The focus shifts a little bit. No longer is Aaron and his sons primarily in, view, primarily in view, but now the people of Israel come to the fore. Now that Aaron and his sons were considered ritually pure, their tasks now turn to cleansing and making atonement for the people. Why was that? Well, verse 9 6 says it all. Moses there says, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. So Aaron and the sons, they, if you read on, they follow everything, all the instructions by the mouth of Moses, God's instructions to a T. And then we see the result of this from verse 22. 
Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. I mean, this is, this is surreal, isn't it? The awesome power of God on display in glorious fire. A supernatural event when God himself comes and rocks up at their doorstep. The people respond in the only appropriate way. They shout out and bow down in worship of their God. But despite how wonderful this display of glory, of God's glory was, we still ought to recognize its limitations. For only the high priest and Moses were able to enter the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was revealed in a special way. Israel then stood as observers, onlookers. Yes, they experienced God in that moment. Yes, they beheld him manifest his glory. But there were limitations. Why? Why? Why was it limited? Because the presence of God is a supremely dangerous thing towards sinful humanity. God is so opposed to sin, it's so filthy in his sight that we can't enjoy God's presence unless that sin is truly taken away and dealt with. And just like the offering that was consumed by holy fire that day, the penalty of sin has to be paid for and toned for. And it's at this point that the splendor of Christ as the better high priest shines through once again. Firstly, on the cross, Jesus is the Lamb of God, who was consumed by the holy wrath of God, receiving upon himself the penalty of sin. But secondly, not only was he the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb, but he's also the High Priest, who after his resurrection ascended back to heaven and presented the offering of himself to God the Father. Hebrews 9.24 explains it for us. It says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made by hands, an earthly tabernacle or temple, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, ever since that wonderful day of Pentecost, all believers can experience the presence of God through the Holy Spirit Sent down from heaven. Hebrews 4.16 is a wonderful verse. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Furthermore, as we consider this glorious presence of God coming to us, You need to recognize that it comes through believing the gospel and God's word. Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things out of your law. 
If you survey the Old and New Testaments, the physical manifestation of God's glory is actually quite sparse. Yes, we see Israel, uh, God appearing to Israel, to, to them at many times. Yes, we see Jesus go up on the mount and be transfigured. And for a moment, the door cracks open when we see his divine nature shine through. Yes, at his conversion, the Apostle Paul saw a light from heaven shine around him. And there are many other times throughout church history where people have encountered God in a special way. Maybe you could think of, uh, I, I hear that sometimes Muslims often have, who are, God will draw them to Jesus. Perhaps they might have a dream of Jesus that leads them to a Christian or to a Bible and to hearing about Jesus. But despite all these things, until Christ returns, the primary experience of God's glory is internal, through faith and repentance. And we shouldn't underestimate how glorious this is. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 explains it for us. There he says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is what is on offer in the gospel, experiencing God's glory through the indwelt Holy Spirit. And I wonder if you have experienced this for yourself. Knowing that Jesus, as high priest, has drawn you near to God. With his presence no longer there, a a threat to you because of sin. That is what is on offer in the gospel. So thirdly, when we consider Aaron's and his sons, their priesthood. There's another thing that we learn about the priesthood of Jesus. We learn from them that Jesus' priesthood is forever and always. Not only is it perfect and relational, but it's forever and always. After the profound success and joy that we see in chapters 8 to 10, Uh, Sorry, 8 to 9. Chapter 10 comes to us as a huge shock in the story of Nadab and Abihu. Perhaps you can think of other shocking incidents that have occurred throughout human history. Maybe not quite like this, but have some similarities. One such example that came to my mind was back in 2012, 2013 in the world of cycling when it came to light that Lance Armstrong had been taking performance-enhancing drugs. Overnight, the man who had won seven Tour de France races, had founded charities, had met US presidents, and who was idolised by so many, had everything stripped away from him. All to the shock of the world of racing and indeed around the globe. That bears some similarity to the story here in chapter 10 of Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu. Those who held highly esteemed offices and positions in Israel 
had quite a great fall. But unlike Lance Armstrong, who we saw, at least from our perspective, a fall in the eyes of the public, what is emphasised in our passage is, yes, it was a public fall for them, but the point is, their fall was in God's eyes. It was in God's eyes that they were found lacking. What was their charge? Offering unauthorised fire, incense not commanded by God. A deviation from the rules, the wrong offering. What was the tragic result? It says, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. In an age of tolerance and acceptance of who you are, in the culture that we live today, these verses are especially shocking to our culture. How can God be so harsh to them? Weren't they simply just trying their best? So what if they didn't offer exactly what God wanted? Isn't their heart in the right place? But to say all this is to see the issue from a, hum- from a human's perspective. In contrast, Scripture time and time again calls and beckons us to see things from God's perspective. That the judgment God ex- of God experienced by Nadab and Abihu is actually what we all deserve. For all of humanity falls short of the glory of God, as Paul puts it. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, as Isaiah puts it. Can't you see what God is urgently trying to teach us here from this passage? He's saying, come place your trust in Jesus, who he was consumed by my wrath on your account. Don't try and offer something else, your own good works to please me or anything otherwise. Only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus will save you from God's judgment and being the one consumed. It's a plea to believe in the gospel. Ultimately, that urgent need then for forgiveness of sins couldn't come through Aaron's priesthood. We see in chapter 10, already from the very start, it was lacking. Only the forever and always priesthood of Jesus can truly save us. In Hebrews 7, verse 23, it says there that the former priests, the Aaron and his sons, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, meaning that he never dies. If you're a believer here this morning, this means the most wonderful thing. It means that God's presence and the Holy Spirit can never be taken away from you. It is the one thing that is permanent and sure in a world of uncertainty and change. Despite how much of a failure you might feel at times or what hardships you might face. For even death itself is simply an entryway into the loving arms of Jesus. And if you're not a believer here today, once again, this is an urgent plea to turn to Jesus. To understand your profound need for God to forgive you of your sins. 
to find true fulfillment and joy in Him, knowing that you are drawn near to God, to acknowledge that you can't please God yourself, and to put your faith in Jesus, who will make you worthy in God's eyes and reveal God's glory to you. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful thing to consider uh, these passages and what you truly did for us in Jesus. Fathers, we consider our own sin and how it, by nature, disqualified us from enjoying your presence, enjoying a life in you. Father, we... We are overcome knowing that Jesus has taken away that sin, that he has dealt with it finally on the cross. And that, Father, out of love, you sent your Son into this world for that very purpose, to die for us and take away those sins and restore us to you. As a, sheep who, uh, as a shepherd who looks after his sheep and lays down his life for the sheep, Father, you have gone above and beyond and achieved what we could not achieve. Holy Spirit, will you work in our hearts today to draw us near to you? Will you show the splendor of Jesus and your glory to us? Help us to see how precious your salvation is and to have a hope to hold on to that in this life, no matter what we experience or face. And Father, help us to have faith as we look forward to a day when your glory will be revealed in all its fullness. Father, may that joy so resonate in our hearts that we can't help but speak to others and that others can't help but see that joy in us. And Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet believe in Jesus. Holy Spirit, will you graciously convict them of sin? Will you show them their great need for you? And Father, will you graciously draw them near to you and reveal your gospel to them? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.